Let's take our Bibles and let's head it over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the third in an installment of three different messages that is dealing with one question about the gifts of the Spirit. And we're focusing on this on the gift of tongues. And so we've been answering some questions that relate to it. If there's any one area that the gifts of the Spirit gets a lot of confusion in, it is this one. This tongues, uh, gift of tongues gets most of the discussion, most of the debate. <coughs> there are different ways that people can do tongues. Some will say it's an ecstatic overtaking of the Holy Spirit where you just start gushing out in a gibberish or an ecstatic speech. Some will say it is when you're going to be speaking a language that you may not know. Some have different versions of it. There's a wide variety of what's being practiced today. What I want us to do is step back and say, what does the Bible say? Not what does my experience say, what does somebody else tell me, but let's just take an honest look at scriptures as what the Bible says about it. In doing that, here's what we found out so far. We found out that in the book of Acts, the gift of tongues was an occurring gift that happened three times in the book of Acts that it happened. I give you the chapters here, that in chapter 2 at Pentecost, where the disciples speak in tongues and the crowd hears them. They don't even need an interpreter. It's just all of a sudden they can speak. These untrained Galileans can speak in all these different foreign languages that the people say, we hear them in our dialects. And so they list off a number of different dialects. It happens again in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is going to share the gospel for the first time with a Gentile a family, and he goes to the house of Cornelius to indicate that God has accepted them. All of a sudden they speak in tongues, and Peter's response, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, who already have the same spirit? Then the third time is Acts chapter 19, when Paul is coming into the city, meets some disciples who know about John the Baptist, were baptized under John's baptism, but they've not heard about Christ. They don't know about the baptism of, of the Christian, and so they get baptized, they speak in tongues. My point here is that over a 30-year period of the, of the book of Acts, there's only three mentions of it. Now, could it have happened multiple other times? Yes. But in the book of Acts, there's many other times where people get saved, people gather together, and there's no mention of the gift of tongues. So the conclusion in my mind, it is not norm for all believers to have spoken in tongues, not even in the book of Acts. We also made this other observation. It's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you were to read from verses 4 all the way down through the end of the chapter, the conversation is about the gifts. The Holy Spirit gives those gifts. He makes that very clear in verse 4, 5, 6. Verse 7, he says it's the manifestation of the Spirit given to every man with all. Then he describes what some of the gifts are. And then he talks about the gifts are like a human body in a local church. Some are fingers, some are eyes. Some have different abilities so they can make contribution. Our point is the gifts were one of, I'm sorry, the gift of tongues was one of many spiritual gifts. They were given at the discretion of the Holy Spirit. People couldn't pick and choose their gift. And they'd say, I want to do this, so I'm just going to somehow wind, wind myself up to all of a sudden have this gift. It was done by the Holy Spirit, by His sovereignty. We can't conjure it up. It was given to help out the body, verse 7, to profit the body, not the individual. As well, it was spread out amongst the body that there was all these different gifts so that you have an eye, a finger, an, eye, uh, an ear, whatever, to contribute to the body. Not everybody has the same gift, no, but everyone has at least one. No one has all the gifts, and as well, no one gift was given to all people. That is clear in this text. 
He makes it, and we've, we've studied some of the texts more involved, so let me move on. They were never intended, the gift of tongues, were never intended to be practiced by all believers. That is a clear statement. Look at, at, at chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 30. He talks about are all apostles, are all this, are all that. In the original language, it is clear the answer is no, 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 no. You can't get a yes out of the original language. They use, do all speak with tongues? He specifically asked this. The answer is no. So for some church or group to come up and say, you and every believer needs to speak in tongues, that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. Let me go to number four. Tongues in particular were given as a sign to the Jews. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look down in verse, um, go over a couple chapters. Go down to verse 21, and he says, In the law it was written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And he goes on and explains that even this people would not respond properly and appropriately when the tongues were being spoken. So the, side, the, the Jews in this text, look at the verse, verse 22. He says, okay, it's to the Jews, but in particular, unbelievers, unbelieving Jews. Did that happen in the book of Acts? That's Pentecost. They're preaching to unsaved people. 3,000 respond. But in Acts chapter 10, when those people speak in front of the Jews, it is a testimony to believing Jews that even the Gentiles have the same Holy Spirit. We discussed this at length. We talked about it, that in the book of Acts, when it was first initiating the church and even the gifts, that the gift of tongues was a sign to both unbeliever, unbelieving Jews, Pentecost, and to believing Jews that the Gentiles were accepted. That's what it was in the first, in the first beginning of the church age in the book of Acts. But by the time Corinthians is written, so I'll give you a time frame, book of Acts is probably starting right around 28, 28 A.D. By the time Corinthians is being written, we're talking mid-60s. So we're talking that some 30 years have gone by already. And he's saying, in that 30 years, we've changed something. I've, God has, we talked about this morning, God changes uh, even how he, he does things. And he brings certain things he starts, and then he puts restrictions on them. And he says, okay, here, tongues, I'm going to use it both to the, to the Jews, both believing and unbelieving. But by the time he writes 1 Corinthians 14, he's saying, I'm limiting it now. We don't need another sign to the believing Jews. They have, they have the inspiration of the scriptures that's teaching them Gentiles are part of the church. We're written all, all, all about that in Galatians, written about that in Ephesians. So now the gift of tongues that was still functioning at that moment, right around 64 AD, it is only to be used in the, before unbelieving Jews. Now when you do a study going beyond that time, okay, and you say, okay, this is, this is the idea of what do we follow? Do we follow something that happened back there? Or do we follow the last word? We're following the last word, the clarification of it, the explanation of it. And when we do that, we look back and we say, it's interesting that every time tongues was spoken in the New Testament, every account in Acts, it was in the vicinity of Jews. Now, some will debate that. Some will say, well, wait a minute. Corinthians had the gift of tongues. But even if you look in the church, the history of the church of Corinthians, where were they meeting? According to Acts chapter 18, they were meeting in a house that was right next door to the synagogue. It was attached to it. 
And so it's in the vicinity where Jews would be, would be hearing it, would be passing by, and would be exposed to the gospel via, via this sign that was intended for them. It's another fact. Spirit-given tongues in the New Testament were real languages. They weren't gibberish. They were unknown language, unknown to the speaker, not unknown to everybody but unknown to that individual. Some will claim, as we looked at at length last week, that they're an angelic language based on 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I were to speak with the tongues of angels. And we pointed out that that's, that's not a, a statement, that's a hypothetical um, possibility that he is making. It's not a statement of fact that this happens. But then beyond that, t- the angels always spoke in languages that people could understand whenever they appeared. Beyond that... There are words that are used for tongues in the New Testament. There are two words that are translated throughout the book of Acts as tongues. The two words are going to be seen to be glossa, and the other one is dialectos. Both of those are words that mean a human language, a foreign language. As well, he lists off when he says, we hear them in our glossa in each and every one of our dialectos. It's not gibberish. You don't, have, you don't have dialects of gibberish. And so it's a known language that later on he says the gift of interpretation is literally translating from one language to another. And in that same statement that he makes in 1 Corinthians 10, he says there are different kinds or families of tongues. And if you know anything about science, you have family classifications. He uses that word genus that has the idea of we're dealing with real languages that have different groupings. They could be groupings of Asiatic or Romance, Romantic, Roman-type languages. They could be in America. Does America have different dialects? Does English, let's put it that way, does English have different dialects? Yeah, do British speak a little bit different than Americans? Yeah, okay. And so it, it's a language that he's making it very clear. The biblical practice of tongues was dealing with human languages that were unknown to the individual. That's, that's the, the sense, that's the description of them in scriptures. Number six, it was foretold that tongues would suddenly stop in history. Their sudden stop would also go at the same time that the gift of prophesying and the gift of knowledge would stop, which was indicating that those three were temporary gifts. So the, the gifts were statements were made that these two, prophecy and knowledge, that they will run out of gas when something replaces them, but the gift of tongues will all of a sudden cease. He makes a statement. We know in tidbits. We know in little bits of revelation, because one of you would stand up and you would give some type of revelation God spoke to you because we don't have the written word of God yet. So you would stand up and you would speak, and then somebody would, if you spoke in tongues, would interpret. We'd hear something from God. Or one of you would stand up and you would give clarification of some, maybe by the gift of prophecy, you were declaring a passage of the Old Testament for us to fully understand. And so we would be building us up. He says, we're living, living, or we're learning in tidbits, but when that which is complete is come. The context is clear that he's talking about the complete revelation. It's not Jesus. It's not something else. It's when that which is complete, the full revelation has come, then we don't need these gifts anymore. And so that makes it clear that this idea of being able to get something from God 
directly in and of yourself that you would all of a sudden stand up and share with the rest of us, that's going to stop or did stop when we had the completed Word of God, which fits the prophecy of 1 Corinthians 13 that says tongues would cease. They would stop. They were temporary for a period of time. And so when the completed Bible came, we didn't have it. Now, here's one for you. If you look at, and and this is really critical to understanding how I think if we understand 1 Corinthians, and I'm sorry, if we read 1 Corinthians from a certain perspective and try to put ourselves in Paul's sandals of what he's dealing with, 1 Corinthians 14 makes perfect sense. No contradictions. It just flows beautifully. It starts with this idea that Paul is writing to the church, and he's trying, this church is practicing. They have tongues going on. Doesn't mean they were practicing it right. And so he's telling them, hey, listen, the gift that you're all chasing after tongues, which they were chasing after, he says, it's an inferior gift. Watch how he makes a comparison. And it shows up several times that he makes this comment. He says, though I were able to speak with, chapter 13, verse 1, though I were to speak with tongues of angels and I don't have charity. Charity is better. Loving one another is better than all of a sudden you having this ability to get up and speak in tongues. You showing charity is much better than you having the gift of tongues. Go to chapter 14. Follow after charity. Desire spiritual gifts, but rather... If you're going to seek after a spiritual gift, which one does he encourage you to seek after? Prophesying, okay? Look at what he says a little bit later on in chapter 14, verse 13. Wherefore, let him that speaks in an unknown tongue pray that he may be able to do what? Interpret. Pray that he interpret. Why? The interpretation is better, as we'll see in a few moments. It's better than the gift of tongues that nobody understands. He mentions that a little bit later in verse 18. I thank my God. I speak in more tongues than all of you. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with understanding that by my voice I might teach others than 10,000 words in tongues. And he's making it clear there is something better for the church than this gift of tongues. And you can continue on. Look at the rest of the, the passage. It's an inferior gift. How is it presented in the Pentecostal world today? As the ultimate or, or superior gift. That's not what Paul said. That's not what he indicated at all. Even when tongues were still valid, he says to them, okay, if you're going to speak in tongues, let's go to verse 27. If you're going to speak in tongues, let's make sure we do it a right way. Why? Well, look back in verse 23. If the whole church has come together and all are speaking in tongues, he's not saying you should do it. He's saying if this were to happen and everybody's speaking in tongues and there come in one of those who is an unbeliever. Okay, he says, what will they say about you? He says, you're what? They'll think you're crazy. They'll think you're crazy. He goes on. But if all of you were declaring the word of God, sharing the word of God, and there come in one that believes not or one is unlearned, what happens? He is convinced. He is convicted by what? The word of God, the Holy Spirit working through that. So, Then he says, okay, with that in mind, how is it then, brethren, verse 26, you come together and every one of you has a psalm, a doctrine, a tongue. Everyone has a revelation. Let's get everything so that it's done unto what purpose? The end of verse 26. What's the ultimate purpose? Edifying. Edifying. Therefore, okay, if any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by what? 
What's, what's, what's his first statement here? It let it be by two or at the most three in a church service. Okay? And they have to say it how? What's it mean by, and that by course? What's that mean? One at a time. One after another. What is another? Okay, at the most three people in any service. One after another. What else has to be present? There has to be an interpreter. When do you have to know that this interpreter can, can interpret their tongues? Beforehand. Beforehand. And if there be no one interpreter, then what do you tell that person who claims that they have the gift of tongues? Be silence in the church and let him speak to himself. Okay? Just keep it to himself. Then he goes on. He says, okay, let the prophet speak. And he gives an order for the preaching, even in the service. There is one more that you're not going to like, but it's there in the text. In context of a worship service of people standing up and declaring God's word, what does he tell the ladies to do in verse 34 in the public worship service? Let the ladies keep silence. Does that mean you can't sing? Is that what he's meaning? Not in the context. Does that mean that Sarah wasn't supposed to give a testimony? No, that's not the context. The context is who is preaching, leading, and giving out the discourse from God's word. And he says, in the public worship where there's men and ladies grouped together, the men are supposed to be the ones doing this. So we have this clearly stated in Scripture that he's put restrictions on tongues. Restrictions that weren't there before. They weren't there in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2 when they spoke in tongues, did they violate this restriction? It wasn't in place. So, but if, if, they, if the restrictions were already in place, would they have been in violation? The answer is yes, because in the book of Acts, they all, you know, at least the 12 apostles are speaking, and they're doing it all at one time. But as time went by, he is saying, okay, let's, let's put some limitations on this. Okay, we're, that worked back then, but in church services now where we're growing, we're expanding, God is saying, you know, things are changing. We're going to have deacons. We're going to have, you know, requirements for pastors. We're going to do different things. We're going to even gather offerings different. He mentions that in 1 Corinthians 16. He brings this all together. He says, when it comes to tongues, I want it different than what it was before. Okay, when you speak in tongues, from here on out, here's what you have to do. Okay, and we understand that in the first part of Acts that it may have been done differently, but this was just the beginning of the church, the transition. As time went by, all of a sudden certain rules went into place for the functioning of the church so that everything was by being done decently and in order and to avoid confusion. That's the rest of the chapter, that he's highlighting that. So you and I have to look and say, ask this question, who put the restrictions in place? God did. God did. Paul's being led by the Spirit to write this. The same Holy Spirit that gives the gifts is giving Paul what to write here. So if the Spirit through God put it in place, these restrictions were put in place after the book of Acts, which means there changes from Acts to present, when the churches are functioning. So therefore, what part of scriptures is supposed to be our manual? 
Well, surely Acts is helpful, but if there's explanation, like the restrictions that are written later on, what do we have to follow? We've got to follow this later on. We have to follow these restrictions, which brings me to this. Therefore, if tongue speaking today goes contrary to these God-given restrictions, that means it's not being done in a godly way. At least it means they're violating the, the restrictions, yes? At least, you know, they're, they're disobeying what God said. And it even could be then it causes me to come into question Who's prompting that type of tongues? Who's prompting confusion in the church? So that if unbelievers come in and they go, you people are crazy, and they turn down the gospel, who possibly could prompt that type of confusion to snatch away the gospel? Okay, I'm not saying every time somebody has, it does it, it's of the devil, but is that a possibility? Okay. Do you think these restrictions were put in place to encourage more of tongue speaking or to limit it in the church of Corinth? Okay, we're all going to agree with that, yes? He was limiting what they were doing and saying, hey man, wait a minute, you shouldn't be doing this. So that leads us into a more expansive discussion of 1 Corinthians 14, which is where a lot of the confusion comes up. So my point is this. As I study this text, I think what Paul is saying in this text is tongues are not well suited for a public worship service. Even when it was functioning, he's saying to them, guys, there's something better than what you're doing. You you see, here's where I go with this. Here's the Bible facts we already stated. Real tongues was the ability to speak in real languages. They were never intended for all in the church or even many of the believers in the church to engage in, in a service. They were intended to be assigned to unbelieving Jews. As well, they were intended to be used to edify the body, not elevate an individual. But, can I suggest that maybe what's happening in Corinth was violating that? That in the city of Corinth, what they were doing in the church of Corinth, which by the way, the church of Corinth, were they a spiritual group of people? No, they're called babes. Did they have problems with other things in the church that they were doing? Yeah, they weren't even doing communion right. They were doing the different things of suing each other. They were doing the different things of, of, of not caring for one another and eating meats offered to idols with, with pride and arrogance, not helping out the poor people. They weren't even taking the offerings right. There was a whole mess in the church. They had their favorite preacher. You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, my favorite preacher is Apollos. No, mine's Peter. Mine's Paul. And they were divisive in the church. The church had all kinds of issues going on. They were very immature. And so is there a strong possibility that he's taking three chapters of the book to deal with an abuse of the tongues in that church? It sure fits the context of the book. Does that make sense? That he's dealing with a, the way that they're doing it, they're not doing it right. And the way that they're claiming it's, it goes contrary to what he's teaching, what he's taught, and so he has to back up and explain, don't you remember I told you it was a gift of edifying, not exaltation? It was supposed to be uh, a gift that, that some would have, not everyone. Here, they, would, they could easily have claimed, I am more spiritual because I have tongues. 
which is the gist of 1 Corinthians 14, which is the gist of 1 Corinthians 13, I'm showing you a more excellent way. You think that you've got this, this, you know, this handle on God, but you don't even have love. Letting it therefore deteriorate into an experience of what was happening in that church that maybe it was ecstatic speech that some of them were doing. The reason I suggest that that's a strong possibility, we know historically that in the pagan temples surrounding Corinth and that region, forms of gibberish and ecstatic speech was a part of the different types of pagan worship. And those who did it, how did most people view those who all of a sudden would speak in a God language? How would most commoners look at somebody? They would elevate them. They would think that person has a real, um, help me out here, um, connection with God, with the spirit world. And so gibberish and ecstatic speech was not unknown to the world at that time. It was part of pagan practices. As well, there was a teaching that was flooding in several other churches that he writes to in the New Testament. They have Gnostical tendencies. If you remember what Gnosticism is, Gnosticism is the idea, kind of what you and I grew up in, if we, in the Catholic background. What did the priest always claim? They, have a, they, have, they are better than the common person. They have a better, I, I'm, I'm struggling with the term here, they have a better connection with God than the normal person. That's Gnosticism. That's what Paul has to write about in other epistles and, and refute. John, I'm sorry, John especially focused that people claim that they are, have a greater inside track with God than anybody else. Could people in Corinth all of a sudden have been, been influenced and say, ooh, he can speak this heavenly speech that's ecstatic. Don't understand it, but I want that too because then I'm going to be more spiritual and I'll be one of the spiritual elites. I suggest to you that that was going on in Corinth. Of strong possibility it was going on and therefore they were putting experiences over exposition of Scripture. Does this happen today? Do people that get in some of this, con in this conversation, do they claim a greater spirituality because they speak in tongues than other Christians? They do. Do they claim experience trumps the Scriptures? They do. Okay? And so this happens, and I think what Paul is doing is Paul is writing to them, and to me this makes perfect sense as I read 1 Corinthians. He's writing and saying, I've got to put restrictions on this, being led by the Spirit, because you guys are getting carried away with it. That would explain the restrictions, that what they were doing was abusing it. Yes, no? You don't, you, your kids start abusing your liberties that you give them. What do you normally do? You restrict the liberties, yes? Okay, and so he's doing that. Might not Paul even use hypothetical exaggerations that they are claiming so that he can say, okay, your kid says to you, everybody's doing it. Is everybody a reality? Whatever it may be, everybody's doing it. And you use a hypothetical exaggeration to refute what they just said. You say, if everybody... 
jumps off a cliff, are you advocating for everybody to jump off a cliff? Maybe. <laughs> okay. We, we, we use these exaggerated hypotheticals that sometimes our kids use to show the foolishness of what they're asking. If we read 1 Corinthians with saying, Paul's a normal person. He's speaking to people to try to correct, and he might even use their claims against them. The text makes a whole lot more sense, and it doesn't contradict itself. It really flows a whole lot better. So it is, well, Paul, by the way, is going to make this very clear that this whole idea, these aren't, these, this gift of tongues isn't really best suited for the church worship service. Let me give you several reasons why. And again, I'm just targeting a few verses. I want to start with the verse at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to jump there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The last phrase, because this is one that all of a sudden you say, but wait a minute. Okay. Covet earnestly the best gifts, and I show you a more excellent way. You and I read, but covet the, uh, earnestly the best gifts. How do we read that? As a statement or a command? You think? It should be as a statement. But most people read it as, I want you to covet the best gift. In the original language, it's written and the verbiage is such that it can be either a command or it can be just a statement. If we understand that Paul is just making a statement, you people seek to go after what you think is the best gift. But I want to show you a more excellent way. It makes a whole lot more sense. Because for him to say, each and every one of you needs to chase after a spiritual gift. Wait a minute. What has he just said about the Spirit? The Spirit is the one who gives out the gifts. It's not up to you and me. It's the Spirit that gives them out. Yes? What should we do? Force the Spirit to give us a gift? A certain one? The answer is no. So if we remember what he's just said, that he's already stated the Holy Spirit is going to give him as the Holy Spirit chooses, but what, do you, what about you? Instead of you chasing after it, he's saying to you, he's saying, but you have a tendency of chasing after a gift that you think is the best of the gifts. And I want to show you a better way. Number one, you shouldn't be chasing after it. The Spirit's going to give you. Number two, it's not the best gift what you're chasing after. You're chasing after tongues, but it's not the best gift. In fact, the best thing of all is, yeah, prophecy is going to be better than the gift. But even better than the prophesying is love, the love chapter. And so it's a statement. You may want to mark your Bibles on this one, okay? So that you have an understanding that that verse is a statement of what's going on in the church rather than a command to them. And it fits the whole text a whole lot better. And then what Paul does is he's going on, and let's say it, let's read the chapter from this perspective. That he is saying, okay, even if you speak in ecstatic speeches, and even if you claim that all of you speak in tongues, let me tell you some things. This isn't good in the church. Why not? Tongues are inferior to the preaching of the Word of God to the prophesying of the Word of God. You go through scriptures, God's preferred method of communicating with people is His Word. How do people get saved? 
Faith cometh by, and by, hearing by. Okay, so rather than us standing here and we're all doing a gibberish, and an unsaved person comes in, what is more important to bring them to conviction? Our experience or the proclamation of God's Word? God's Word. God's Word. He's, you know, your tongues do not edify those who don't understand. Look at chapter 14, verse 2, where he's making a comment, where he's saying in that verse, and he's talking, he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to men. And, he's, and again, I'm, I'm looking at it that is he saying you get this one-on-hand communication? This is what you're claiming. You're claiming you get a, a communication to God. But I want to tell you something. Your church worship service is about you communicating the Word of God to other people. And so his statement is here, he's, for he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto people. Okay, maybe what you claim he speaks unto God. But no man understands him. How, how is it that in the Spirit he's speaking all these ununderstood things? What good is it? And Paul is being a little bit snide in saying, you're speaking unto God. Not saying that it's real, but that's what you claim. And as well, let's go a little bit further. He encourages them all the way through the chapter. It's edifying. It's edifying. Jump down to verse 12, for instance. For as even so you, for as much as you are zealous of the spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to do what in the church? Edify. Not exalt yourself, but edify. And then he goes on and he points out, but your tongues aren't edifying. The tongues that you are doing, they are all about self-promotion. He that speaks in an unknown tongue, verse 4, who does he edify? Himself. Look at verse 4. He, he exalts himself. He's not saying that's a good thing. In context, he's saying it's a bad thing. Gifts weren't intended for you to build up yourself. They were intended for you to build up the body. And so he's, he's saying that, you know, the prophesying, that's benefiting the body, not the tongues. The tongues, the, the only person they edify is, or they, they help, they lift up, is you. But that's not why you're here. You're not here. Do you remember what he just said in the verses before? What good is it if the ear says, I don't need the rest of the body? The eye says, I don't need the rest of the body. He has already stated that those who are all about their thing, they're harmful to the body. They're not helping the body. Do you remember that whole illustration? He's just, he's just spent a whole chapter, half a chapter, talking about that idea. We're not supposed to be self-focused. We're to be body-focused. And now he says, the way you're doing tongues, it's all about you, focusing on you. That's not good. Where the prophesying, the proclamation of the Word of God, that's good. That's really good. Tongues are not understood by everyone present. Therefore, they require an interpreter, first of all. Well, we've already read that. You have to, you know, We'll come back to that one in a minute. Using them the way you are doing it, talking to that church, actually is repulsing people from the gospel, right? We already read that, verse 23. It says they come in and think you're crazy. But if they hear the word of God and it's preached in a language they understand, wonderful. It's going to bring them to conviction. Sad because tongues were supposed to be assigned to who? But the way they were doing it, they were chasing him away. Isn't that, isn't that sad? Because it was chaotic in the church. 
it was all of a sudden, apparently, how many people were speaking in tongues? Seemed like they all wanted to do it. And when they were doing it, it was all at once. There was no order. There was no... And he's saying, what was God intended to draw people to Christ, what you're doing with it is chasing them away from Christ. It was to be their use of the tongues was contributing confusion in the church. And he makes it very clear confusion is not good. God is not the author of confusion. Not at all. God is an author of order and decency. Let me show you something else here. Instead of encouraging the use of these in, in the church service, Paul is encouraging something different. He is saying, if you're going to have anything happen, happen where there's clarification, where speak, people are speaking so they can understand. That they hear and they understand. He has a whole section in here. If you, just, if you jump down into the middle of it, he says this. Um, verse 13. Wherefore, let him that speaks in an unknown tongue, <laughs> you who are doing it, you should want to interpret not speak in tongues. Why not? He goes on, he makes this comment. If I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. And again, our charismatic brethren are going to say, see, he's advocating praying. My contention is, he is saying, if everyone jumps off a cliff, will you also jump? And it makes a whole lot more sense. Even if I could pray in, an, in a tongue, what does he say? He's going on, even based on your claims, if this were happening, what good is it? That's his point in the end of verse 14. My understanding is unfruitful. It doesn't help me. What is it then? I want to I, I pray in the Spirit. I want to pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. I want to sing with understanding. Else when you bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned saying, Amen? At your, can I give you the illustration? We're sitting around the table. Thanksgiving is coming. We're going to sit around the table. And one of, the, one of our kids are going to ask one of the little kids to pray. You ever been in these? They ask one of the little kids to pray. And one of the little kids prays. And what are you doing? You got one eye open. Why? You don't know if they're praying. You don't know when they stop. And it's a good thing that the kids learn to pray, but the last thing you want to be doing is as the kid finishes praying, the last thing you want to be doing is just still like this, and they have to say, I'm done. And Paul is saying, I don't want to be in those spots, necessarily in a worship service. I want when somebody's praying, I want to understand what they're praying. When somebody sings, I want to understand what they're singing. Okay? Otherwise, what are we doing with the music? Then it's simply entertainment, right? If we can't connect with what is the message, then it's just tickling our ears, beautiful music. And so Paul is saying, when somebody prays, if I don't understand what they're doing, I, I, I want to understand is what he's getting at. I want to benefit from it. And that's where he goes on and he says, you know, he says in verse 18, I thank my God, I speak with more tongues than any of you people. I've had this gift. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five, just five words. I will not make this my life verse. Okay. I, yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with what? 
with understanding. He says that by my voice I might teach others than have 10,000 words that nobody understands. Do you see the sense of where he's going with this text? What you're doing is a mess. And what you're claiming makes no sense. You're edifying yourself. You're not edifying the body. You're claiming everybody has it. That's just not true. He's already mentioned that before. And so his whole point is, if you insist on praying for a gift, then go after the gift of prophesying, the declaration of the Word of God. Where Whatever you do, don't let the church service sink into a state of confusion. That's where he's going with this text. And then you say, what, but Pastor Wayne, the passage ends up saying this. The passage, he, he, he makes the comment at the end of it, verse 39. Wherefore, brethren, covet more than anything the, the declaration of the word of God, and forbid not to speak with tongues. So how could you, pastor, would you? Maybe I should put it this way. If somebody came in our church service and all of a sudden we were having church and somebody stood up and they started speaking in tongues in the worship service, what would we do? <laughs> I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stop it. Because that's not what's, what's advocated in the passage. Even before they were, spoke, they were going to speak in tongues, we would have to know it and provide a... Interpreter. So if it happens spontaneously, it's not that I'm against the leading of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is already led in his declaration of restrictions. And so we would stop it. And then somebody would say, but the passage says, do not forbid to speak in tongues. I agree with it. I don't think I'm contradicting Scripture at all. What I think is this. At that time when it was written, were tongues a functional gift? Yes. Was Paul saying they can still function at this time when he wrote it? Yes. Were they to be restricted? Yes. But don't forbid somebody as long as they meet the requirements. Then it's still valid. But where we stand in history at this point, where we stand is tongues aren't necessary anymore. They were predicted to cease when? With the completion of Scripture. Therefore, they're not functional today. But at that time, don't forbid. But today, since they're not functional, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, who predicted that they would stop and had, those, had that in place, then it means I'm stopping it. Because it's not the same Holy Spirit that is contradicting himself. Then some would say, what about praying in tongues? Well, Paul says, you know, I'd, I'd pray. Yeah. And so Paul is advocating praying in tongues at the verse that we looked at before in verse 14, where he says, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding. If you look at it in its context, is he saying, this is a good thing that I pray without understanding? No. He's saying it's a bad thing. And so as he is saying it, and by the way, this is the claim that I've been told multiple times. If we pray in tongues, then Satan doesn't know what I'm praying for. And it goes directly to God, and Satan cannot disturb the prayers because he doesn't know the speech that I'm speaking that I don't know that I'm speaking. But the Holy Spirit is going to interpret whatever I'm saying that I don't know what I'm asking about. The Holy Spirit's going to do it, and it's going to work in a wonderful way because Satan doesn't know. Neither do I. 
And so with that in mind, that whole idea is, I want you to just consider, there's no example in scriptures of ever happening that somebody did this. Other than this statement that he says, if I. And the key word in the verse is, if. If this were happening. If everybody jumped off the cliff. So he's speaking hypothetically and he's saying that it's not a real good thing because understanding is all, that's what it's all about. We already talked about those things. That he would rather have them. And so the whole argument here is, you know, people get caught up with tongues. We need to understand why aren't we advocating it? Why aren't we practicing it? And, uh, and, that, and, and again, I know that I've been accused of not following the Holy Spirit. It seems so much more spiritual if the Holy Spirit were all of a sudden to lead us into spontaneity in the worship service, that everything just kind of happens at a whim that is so spiritual. According to this text, it's not. According to this text, our worship services are to be orderly. Does that mean we have to do the same thing every week? No. Can we laugh if somebody makes the wrong date? Can we laugh and, and enjoy that? Yes, absolutely. And so we can have that. We can have that humor. We can have that fun. But we're worshiping in an orderliness. And so he's given all these things. And again, tongues were valid back then. I'm glad that it was. And the God used that gift, but it's, it's a gone gift at this point. Where does that leave me and you? There is one thing that's not gone. And that is the greatest of the gifts. It's the love. Yeah, exactly. The charity that you mentioned. That he says it is charity that is far exceeds anything like tongues. Far more. It's the more excellent way is that we love one another. That we are compassionate to one another. And it is so great because how many of us can have this practice of loving one another? All of us. All of us should be able to practice it and do it and love and cherish and even practice it this evening by welcoming in two new folk, by encouraging one another even here this evening. Father, thank you for these folk, their attentiveness. I hope, God, I, please, in my ramblings and my foolish way of presenting things, I hope that it would be helpful to these folk in some way. You put better orderliness to my words to help these folk to understand why we believe what we believe and do. Help us to have a sweet time here, even as we welcome in these folk into our church body. Thank you so much for your grace, your goodness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here, folks.